Brothers and sisters, I want to invite you to take your copies of God's Word and turn to Psalm 16 as we continue our series looking at Book 1 of the Psalter. That's on page 453 if you're using the Bibles that might be on the seat in front of you. Before I read from Psalm 16, let's pray together. Lord, as we approach Your Word this evening, where else would we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Lord, our hearts are prone to cling to the dust. We pray that You would give us life according to Your Word. Lord, Your every word proves true. And You are a refuge for all those who take refuge in You. Lord, would You shelter us by Your Word? Would You strengthen us by Your Word? Lord, show us our sin. Lord, show us our lack of trust. Show us our failings. And Lord, lead us not to despair, but lead us running to Christ. Lead us thankful for all that He has done for us in the Gospel. Lord, would You help us to know You, to love You, to rejoice in You this evening as we come to Your Word. Lord, bless us and keep us, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. Would you stand with me as we look at Psalm 16 together, brothers and sisters, hear the very Word of God. Psalm 16, a mitcom of David. Preserve me, O God, for in You I take refuge. I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from You. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because He is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. As far the reading of God's Word. You may be seated. Well, Pastor David has said that the theme of book one in the Psalter is conflict. And we see throughout book one that conflict does not deter David from prayer. And it doesn't distract him from prayer either. Instead, it drives him to the Lord. Uh, prayer uh, is what David does when he runs into conflict. He goes to the Lord. And we see in Psalm 16 this wonderful single-minded affection that King David has for the Lord. And so first, what we see in this psalm is that David rejoices that God is his refuge. We see that in verses 1 through 2. And then David meditates on several benefits of being a believer, being one who has taken refuge in the Lord. So first, the benefit of having a people. David rejoices in the fellowship of the saints in contrast with the folly of the wicked and all the trouble that that gets you into. And second, David rejoices in God's provision. But he barely spends time on anything earthly at all. He immediately is pondering the fact that God's greatest gift to him is God Himself. 
And then thirdly, David rejoices in the precepts of God. It's the Word of God that has trained him to think this way. And the Lord is his constant counselor. And then fourthly and finally, we see that David rejoices in God's protection. That the Lord has delivered David and that the Lord continues to, but it's here in this psalm that David looks beyond himself and he prophesies about the Messiah to come, the Lord Jesus, who will be delivered from death and therefore secure all these benefits for us by becoming the propitiation for our sins. And so, brothers and sisters, would you look back with me at verse 1 of Psalm 16? Uh, It says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Uh, King David begins this prayer asking God to preserve him, to guard him. And so David is, again, it's a familiar situation in book 1. He's in some kind of distress. And here we're not told specifically what the situation is, but we don't need to know. David has had many terribly difficult things happen throughout his life. And what we need to do is whatever we have going on in our lives, whether we can relate specifically to David's situation or not, we need to ask the Lord to preserve us, to guard us. The the word that's used here is the same word that's used in Genesis 3, verse 24, when God sent the angel to guard with flaming sword the tree of life after Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden. Now, that's a discouraging image, first of all. It's the consequence of Adam's sin. But it's a striking image of God's power, isn't it? The angel, the flaming sword. David is appealing to this powerful God who sends angels to do his bidding, who sends plagues to judge the gods and the nations. And so David is saying, so God, use your glorious might to protect me, to shield me. It's a powerful appeal. This is the Lord that we come to when we pray. This is the God who hears us, who has all the power at his disposal. And then in the second part of verse 1, David gives the reason for asking God to guard him. And it's because God, in God, David has taken refuge. Now again, in conflict, David is driven to the Lord. David does not speak about the Lord as if he goes to God occasionally just to get him out of a jam, and then he moves on. No, David constantly relies on the Lord. That's where he has settled. He dwells with the Lord. He lives his life within the Lord. It's there that he's taken refuge. When David was on the run from Saul and hiding in caves, God is his greater rock, his greater cave. When David was secure in Jerusalem with armed guards, still his fortress is the Lord. David does not find his ultimate security in any earthly thing. And so in speaking of the Lord as his refuge, we're taken back to Psalm 2, verse 12, where it said, Kiss the son lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. But blessed are those who take refuge in him. We're reminded here that there are two kinds of people in the world. There are those who love the son, who love Jesus and who submit to His kingship, who take refuge in Him. And then there are those who hate Him, with whom the Lord Jesus is angry and who will perish in His way. There are two places to live. There is refuge and there is exposure. There is safety for your soul in God's house and refuge from all evil. And on the other hand, there is the hard wilderness of God's displeasure. 
And like the hard ground of the desert with the sun at full strength bearing down on you, so is everyone who does not put their trust in the Lord Jesus. And we're reminded in Psalm 2, His wrath is quickly kindled. For now the Lord is being patient with the non-believer. Brothers and sisters, we remind our neighbors who do not know the Lord, do not presume on God's kindness. Do not presume on His patience. If you are not in Christ, you must flee to Him. Today is the day of salvation. As for David, he has taken refuge in God. And so he can call on the Lord. He has the benefit of going into the throne room of the Lord. And the Lord hears him. That is our benefit. That is our privilege as sons and daughters of the Most High. And so David says in verse 2, he says to Yahweh, you are my Lord. And David says he has no good apart from him. And so this could mean that David has lots of good things and he has them because of the Lord. And this is certainly a biblical idea. Um, James uh, 1.17, every good gift is from above. David could also mean by this that the greatest good that he has, if he did not have the Lord, it would be worth nothing to him. And I think that's David's point here. It's a theme throughout the psalm that of all the things that he wants, even the, 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 the preservation that David is praying for right now, even if he had that and did not have the Lord, it would be worthless. In the words of Paul in Philippians 3, 8, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For His sake, I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. God is all David wants. And this must be true. It's no contest. Where else would David go? The Lord is not one option among the pantheon of other gods, of the Egyptians, of the Philistines, of whoever else. There is no contest. God puts to shame all rivals. And it is not that David trusts the Lord because God makes David's life just a little bit better. David says he has no good apart from the Lord. If you lined up for David all the riches of the world, all the comforts, all the pleasures, they would be, like David's son Solomon would say, vanity. Like a vapor, a mist that vanishes. Without the Lord, all else would be worthless. Even the safety that David's praying for now. He's acknowledging that if he got it and didn't have the Lord, he wouldn't even want it. Brothers and sisters, do we have this kind of perspective when we bring our supplications to the Lord, when we bring our needs to Him, that even when we ardently ask, is it true that what we want most at the end of the day is the Lord Himself? Do we pray, Lord, You've told me to come boldly to Your throne, and so here I come, and here I come with the specific things that I want because You've told me to. And, and when you answer my specific request, whether it's a yes or the no, I, I want to praise you specifically for those things. But even if I got it all, it wouldn't be worth it if I didn't have you. This perspective keeps our prayers focused on the fact that all the gifts that God has given, of all of those things, He is the greatest gift of all. He is the pearl of great price. Well, this psalm goes on to list for us the benefits of taking refuge in God. And as David lists the benefits, he keeps this recurring theme before us, that God is the greatest benefit. He is the greatest good. 
David would have us know that the greatest benefit of taking refuge in God is God. There is none like Him. There is no God but Him. He is our life, our strength, our song. David needs no other benefit. But there are more. Because the Lord is generous and He lavishes gifts upon us. And so let's see the first benefit in verses 3-4. through Fellowship with the people of God. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. David calls believers here saints, holy ones. And, And this means not that they are perfectly righteous, but that they are set apart for the Lord, by the Lord. What makes you a saint, and this is your identity as a Christian, what makes you a saint is not that uh, you have this outstanding spiritual maturity. Even though as Christians we want to be constantly maturing and seeking growth, what makes you a saint is what God says about you and what He has done for you in Christ. He has drawn you, and you have responded in faith, and He makes you one of His own. If you are called out of darkness, then you have been called into fellowship with others who are in the light. You've been drawn out of Egypt to sojourn and to worship with the people of God. Hebrews 10.25 says, Christians live not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, this fellowship must have been a blessing that David especially appreciated considering the time that he spent separated from the people of God and and the corporate worship that he missed when Saul was pursuing him and he had to hide from him. David was among the pagans for a time, and some of them, King Achish especially, one of the lords of the Philistines, he would have loved to have David join them. But David would not ultimately side with, uh, with those who do not know the Lord. He would not ultimately side with the pagans for two reasons. Uh, for at least two reasons, but one reason is that the saints are his delight. The saints, the holy ones, the ones set apart by God for his own possession, uh, not by the works that they've done, but those are David's people. God has called us to be worshipers, and David is not ashamed to call the people of God his family. But we should notice here that there is temptation to be ashamed of the people of God or to be counted among them. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.8, Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. And then Paul commended Onesiphorus, who often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. They were not ashamed to be associated with Paul. But Paul was recognizing that shame was a temptation. But David is not ashamed to call Uh, his fellow believers, uh, the excellent ones, in whom is all his delight. The reason this is important for us is that Christians, uh, we often look foolish to the world and at times weak. Pastor David was preaching about this this morning. And this appearance is what scoffers of the world love to exploit. They love to point at Christians and make fun of them. And there's something in us when we hear that that cringes. And we're tempted to hide. We're maybe even tempted to distance ourselves from other Christians. But we should remember that the Lord is going to shame the world. And what will He use? 1 Corinthians 1 says that He uses the weak to shame the strong. Those who appear foolish to shame the worldly who thought themselves wise. 
the world would love for you to be ashamed of Christians and in love with the important people of our day, the influencers, the cool people. They want you to aspire to be like them, to value what they do. Meanwhile, we might apply what David says by saying that our heroes, the people we follow, the people we love most in the world are the people we go to church with, the godly friends around us, brothers and sisters in the faith. Those are our people. The world wants you to only associate with others on the most superficial terms. The world wants you to say that my people are the same race, the same economic class, the same education level, the same place we came from, the same sports team, the same political candidate, the same entertainment interests. And it's fine to connect with other people on things that are meaningful for you, but when those things sort you into your place in life, when one of those things that you associate with others based on becomes the thing that controls you, then it has become an idol. David's people are the people of God, those who with him have taken refuge in Christ. And that's the end of the story for him. Those are David's people. David's people are those who have taken refuge. The, the Lord will break down the walls that divide and cause us to rejoice with one another, to pray for one another, to bear one another's burdens while we worship the true and living God. Well, the other thing that makes David extol this benefit the people of God, is the sorrows of idolaters as they multiply. We see there that the idolaters' sorrows multiply. Interestingly, like their gods multiply, like the figurines and the idols that they keep making for themselves, so their sorrows multiply. And they are running after them. They are seeking to acquire these gods, but David will not associate with them. He will not take the names of their gods on his lips to worship them. He'll certainly not take part in their worship practices, pouring out their drink offerings. He avoids all of that. And we remember that these are our options. You either run to the Lord to take refuge in Him, or you run from Him after other gods. All people are running in one direction or another. We have to run from our sin and take refuge in God. And if we are in Christ, this is what we have done. Which implies, by the way, that we have settled there that we have rest, that there is at least we have the rest of the exhaustion of idolatry. Um, we, we are either running to take refuge in the Lord or we are running after idols. The only thing that they accumulate in that race is sorrow. Why do people do this? Well, idolaters think that their false gods will give them what they want. They think they'll give them fertility both in their family and productive crops. They want military victory and they want protection. Uh, in, in essence, and, uh, and we think of it in our day, they want prosperity. They want happiness. And in our day, people pursue the things of the world in, in not all that different of a way than they pursue idolatry. Because they think in the things of the world they will find pleasure. But David tells the truth. Those who run after idols will find the exact opposite. Those who pursue pleasure, prosperity, purpose, in these things, all they will find is pain. They find sorrow. They multiply gods and they multiply their griefs. Brothers and sisters, is this how you think about your neighbor who does not know the Lord? Do you think that they are plunging themselves deeper and deeper into tragedy? And does it move your heart to compassion for them? We ought to be moved to pray for the unbelievers around us who are lost and running after sorrow. 
Pray that the Lord would give us more opportunity to share hope and the joy of the gospel with others. It's not your job to sell Jesus to them. They're not shopping. They're not looking for Him. We proclaim Him. We tell them who He is and what He has done. We share His Word with others. We pray that the Lord would use His Word from our mouths like a hammer that breaks idols, like a sword that pierces. We pray that they would repent and believe the Gospel and that the Spirit would put flesh on dry bones. David loves the people of God and it safeguards him from being drawn toward idols. But now David praises God for what he has given him but mainly that God has given him the gift of himself. So we look now at the provision of God. All five of these words in verses five through six, you look at them there, portion, cup, lot, lines, those are property lines and inheritance. These are all ways of speaking of material, physical blessings. And David has known highs and lows of material goods. He had little when he was on the run and had much when he was Israel's king. But his greatest good the whole time, his portion is the Lord. Look at the way he said it in verse 5. The Lord is my chosen portion, my cup. Now David is not ignoring his earthly goods. I think he acknowledges them when he says that the Lord holds his lot. But David knows that above all of these earthly gifts, again, his greatest gift that he has received is the Lord himself. And so he can say the lines have fallen for him in pleasant places, and he has an, a beautiful inheritance. And you imagine say, David saying this when he's on the run. And people would look around and say, we don't see it, David. Uh, we, don't see, uh, we don't see the beautiful inheritance that you have. And yet David confesses that his inheritance is in heaven. His inheritance is the Lord. Well, how does David know to think this way? How has David learned this? Well, this next benefit, the precepts of the Lord. Uh, David praises the Lord who has given him his very word. Look at verses 7 and 8 with me. He says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. David praises the Lord because the Lord gives him counsel. Now notice how direct that language is. The Lord speaks to me is what David is saying. Kings need counselors and the Lord is his. Now someone might think, well, yes, it must have been wonderful for David to write inspired, God-breathed psalms. The Lord was speaking to him, but I don't think that that's what David is speaking of here. When David speaks of the Lord's counsel, he's speaking of the word delivered through the prophets. He's speaking of the law of Moses, which as the king, he was supposed to have his own handwritten copy approved by the Levitical priests. As a believer, David was supposed to be well acquainted with the scriptures. And as a king, he was supposed to be an expert in them. But then David goes on speaking about his heart also instructing him at night. And someone might think, well, which is it? Does the Lord instruct David during the day and then at night he listens to his heart? Well, his heart instructs him, but that instruction is not independent of the Scriptures. In fact, it's the opposite. His heart has been trained by the Word of God. And so at night it instructs him. What does the righteous man do in Psalm 1, verse 2? Instead of walking with the wicked, standing with sinners, sitting with scoffers, 
His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on that law he meditates day and night. When David rejoices that God gives him counsel, he is rejoicing in the same sort of thing that is available to you and to me. In fact, we have more. We have the complete Word of God, all 66 books. And we have the indwelling Holy Spirit sent by the Father and the Son who shines His light on His Word. Brothers and sisters, let us meditate on His Word day and night. Begin and close your day with His Word and prayer. Night would have been a fearful time for David, especially when he was on the run from enemies and he had to let his guard down in order to sleep. Brothers and sisters, maybe for you, night is a fretful time where sleep eludes you. Or maybe you are fearful. It's a time when uh, uh, wanderings and doubt and despair uh, creeps in. The Lord has not promised us at the end of the day a good night's sleep, but He has promised to be with us. He is with us to comfort us. He is with us in power. Brothers and sisters, commune with the Lord by day and by night. On your next restless, fretful night, turn to the Lord. Plead with Him in prayer. Run to His Word and find strength and comfort and conviction there. Well, now we need to be aware that in the psalm, a shift takes place. And I'll conclude here. We'll look very briefly at this, although this is so important and so powerful. David begins to speak not only of himself, but of another. Peter, in his sermon on the day of Pentecost, says uh, that in this portion of the psalm, verses 8 through 11, that David said concerning him, and he was speaking of Jesus. This is also uh, quoted by Paul in Acts 13. Uh, But these verses, uh, the, the verses that conclude the rest of this psalm, they had relevance to David, but ultimately David was pointing beyond himself. Look at verse 8 where it says, I've set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. And so David, certainly, he set the Lord before him, not meaning that he picks up the Lord and places him where he wants like you would an idol. Rather, that David resolves to trust the Lord no matter what. The Lord is at David's right hand, meaning the Lord is David's strength. And because the Lord is David's source of strength, he will not be shaken. He will not tremble in fearful despair. He will not give up because he trusts the Lord. He can even face death because the Lord is his strength. But for for the Lord Jesus, verse 8 means even more. Because David did not perfectly set the Lord before him. The scriptures are open about David's many terrible sins and failures. Brothers and sisters, we know that the Lord Jesus had no original sin. He committed no, he, he had no original sin and he committed no sin after his conception. The Father was at Jesus' right hand, was his strength, so that he could endure a life of humiliation leading up to the awful death on the cross, where not only would he suffer an agonizing death on the cross, he would bear the wrath of God for the elect, for us. And this moves us into the final benefit that David mentions of taking refuge in God that we see in Psalm 16. And and we see here the relevance that this had for David, but even greater uh, the the relevance that this has uh, for Jesus Christ and the the prophecy that it is about him. So we see finally in verses 9 through 11, the eternal protection of God. Look at verse 9 with me. Therefore, my heart is glad, my whole being rejoices, my flesh also dwells secure. 
For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Now, if we were reading this only through the lens of that which was immediately relevant to King David, what we see is David being confident and joyful and having security because of God's protection. But verse 10, Peter makes this the focus of his explanation in Acts when he speaks of Jesus. In Acts chapter 2, he says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this on you yourselves. That on the but uh, hang on. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Well, this is uh, Peter's uh, perfect explanation, perfect commentary on uh, Psalm 16. So while David was perhaps praying for some immediate rescue for danger, and he knew that the promise the Lord made to him in 2 Samuel 7:16, where the Lord told him and your house and your kingdom shall be made forever, sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. How is it that a king in David's line would reign in such a way to never see corruption and to rule forever? Well, this is fulfilled perfectly in Christ. And so Peter was arguing there in Acts 2 that David did in fact die and go to the grave. And the word in the Old Testament is Sheol. The word in the New Testament is Hades. Uh, this is not saying that Jesus went to hell after his crucifixion. Hades is another word for the grave, uh, being covered over by the shadow of death. Now, hell is a literal place of eternal suffering for the unrepentant. The Greek word that's often used for that is Gehenna. That's why the Apostles' Creed said he descended into hell. It's speaking of Jesus' literal death. It's speaking of Hades there, not of the realm of eternal punishment. And this is important because some will say that Jesus went to hell to continue to bear the punishment for our sin, but this contradicts what Jesus said on the cross, those three powerful words, it is finished. Why do we say all this? Well, because Jesus is the Holy One that the Lord would not let see corruption. Christ's body was not abandoned in the grave. He was raised with the same body in which He suffered, but it was raised glorified, raised imperishable. And therefore, brothers and sisters, we can confess that we will not be abandoned either. God has promised us that if we are in Christ, He will not leave us and He will not lose us. Romans 8.11 says, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Brothers and sisters, we are given new life at conversion. We are taken from death to life. And at death, our souls rise to be present with the Lord. If you are in Christ, then already death has no hold on you, no victory over you. Death has been so conquered by Christ that now for the believer, death is the entryway into glory. We still have to pass through it because of sin unless He returns first. But we pass not into punishment, 
But what does he say in verse 11 of Psalm 16? Into pleasures evermore, into the presence of God, where there is fullness of joy, where all tears are wiped away, where all wounds are healed. Brothers and sisters, the Lord's path is not a path of death like the devil wants you to think. It is not the path of drudgery or foolishness like the world says. It is the path of life. And those in Christ know it with joy. And so as we journey toward the celestial city, where we will go into the presence of the Lord, the place where there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore at His right hand, the Lord Jesus is with us and keeps us and preserves us till the end. We end as we started and as we saw throughout this psalm. What is the source of eternal pleasure? What makes heaven what it is? Is it reunion with people? Is it no more pain or suffering? Certainly, those are glorious parts of heaven. But look at verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The blessings, all of these great things that we have in this life and in heaven, all flow from the one fountain who is the Lord Himself being with Him, beholding Him. That is the joy of heaven. And this is what Christ has purchased for us. Well, brothers and sisters, let us go to Christ now in prayer. Our Father, we thank You for our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank You for Him, the One who unfailingly took refuge in You for His whole earthly ministry and showed us how more than that, uh, that He was the Lord Himself. Uh, Lord, David rejoiced in the people of God. And the Lord Jesus came to purchase a people for uh, out of their sin and misery. And they killed Him for it. But they, this did not sabotage redemption. In fact, it accomplished it. Oh Lord, thank You that You have ransomed us from the grave. Lord, as David thanked the Lord for his cup, we thank You that Jesus willingly received the bitter cup of Your wrath and yet He drained it for all of those who would trust in Him, that we might have eternal, beautiful inheritance with Him. Lord David, bless the Lord who gives Him counsel. We thank You for Jesus, our wonderful Counselor, the very Word of God who took on flesh and dwelled among us. Lord, we thank You that if we have trusted in Him, our hearts can be glad, we can rejoice, that we are not abandoned in the grave, because Christ was not. And so, Lord, we repent, we believe, we follow Him in the path, beginning now and lasting into eternity with fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Oh, Lord, help us to know it. Help us to know the joy of our salvation. Oh, Lord, it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.